Welcome to episode 42 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'll be joined for today's episode by Kara Goucher as we finish our series for Women's History Month and are excited to have our final guest for the month, Sally Bergeson, is joining us. Sally is the founder and CEO of Wazelle, which is a running apparel company for women. She and Wazelle have been making better apparel for women in running since 2007, but she has been doing much more than that as an advocate for women in sport, as an advocate for clean sport, and as an advocate for a better sport for the future generations. And we have much to thank Sally for. We're excited to have her on to wrap up this series. We hope you enjoy this interview. Let's kick it off here with Kara. Hello, clean sport fans. This is Kara Goucher, your host today, and I am joined by Chris McClung. Chris, how are you doing down in Austin today? Hanging in there, quarantined at home. Kara, thanks for asking. Yeah, well, it's so good that we have Chris on today because today on the podcast, our guest is one of my closest friends, and Chris is going to help us stay on task today. But our guest today is Sally Bergeson. Sally, how are you doing? Oh, hi, Kara. I am doing doing well. I am also... At home, um, but uh, and it's a little bit gray outside. But I am here, and I'm really happy to be talking to to you you both today. Well, we are super excited to have you on. You are our last guest in Women's History Month, and I'm super excited to hear your history and hear your perspective on everything. I think most people know you as the founder and CEO of Wazelle and um, a champion for women's equality. But let's go back a little bit Mm -hmm. and let's find out where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? Um, What kind of a kid were you? Ooh, I was a bit of a troublemaker, to be honest. I mean, I don't know if that's a shocker or not. (laughs) No. Um, but uh, I no, I grew up in Berkeley, California, which was, um, you know, so uh, in the 70s, which was just kind of a crazy time, I think, for the world. But uh, especially in Berkeley, it was kind of this epicenter of, uh, you know, the um, 60s movement and women's liberation and racial tension and all this like interesting stuff was happening which my dad was really involved in as a lawyer. So he was a lawyer for, um, he did a lot of do-gooder law, like civil rights law, prisoners' rights law. Um, He worked for the state of California Public Defender's Office. So he had this um, interesting job, but the kind of backstory of our of our family was that my parents had divorced when I was four and my mom lived in the same town, but my dad was our primary parent. And while he was busy doing all of those things, um, my brother and I were kind of, we were very feral, you know, like like wild animals a little bit. And um, so all those jokes that have been circulating about um, what is it? Gen X being kind of like, the generation that's very suited for what's going on right now because everybody ignored us when we were children. <laughs> like that's very true. So, so yeah, I mean, but so I did um, one, one little story that might kind of give you an insight to what I was like as a kid was so because my dad was a lawyer, he had all of these like um, he had a home office, he had like a typewriter and he had all these like, you know, office supplies, which, you know, were at the time were fascinating to me. But when I was in middle school, um, we had home ec. Did you have home ec, Kara? Oh yeah. All right. 
Well, home ec was kind of an eye opener for me in part because my dad like didn't know how to cook. So like literally he knew how to cook like hot dogs and spaghetti and that. (laughs) And it wasn't like we learned to cook anything interesting at home ec in middle school, but they did have us make one time this like weird dessert treat that was like a combination of Captain Crunch and um, I think it was like powdered milk and water and you like poured it into this Dixie cup and then you like put it in the fridge and let it set. <laughs> mm. And I was so appalled that I decided that the thing to do with my little best friend that I had was that we were going to pretend we were the health department <laughs> and write this very official legal sounding letter to the school complaining of the health quality of the things that were being made in home ec. And, um, and so what I still remember typing it up on my dad's typewriter and, you know, just, I mean, this is kind of a shitty thing for kids to do, but I showed it to him and he just basically helped me with the spell check and like, how to <laughs> invent and, you know, how to make it sound like truly correct and, and then sent it off to the school. So that was kind of my relationship with my dad. I love that. That basically, I mean, that's, that tells so much about who you are. It's still who you are, right? I love that. That's a perfect story. So were you into sports at all when you were little? Um, you know, I I mean, I don't know. I loved kickball. Kickball was amazing. <laughs> um, and I got into running just my, my um, senior year. It was kind of funny. It was sort of like I had been, you know, not knowing what I wanted to do with any kind of sports all through high school until my senior year when I finally woke up and I was like, wait a minute, sports look kind of fun. And so I tried out for the volleyball team, but I was like terrible. I was just so bad. And so they basically told me that, look, you're a senior. We don't even, we can't even develop you. Like go, like go, go run for the cross country team. Like, (laughs) because they don't cut anybody. And so I just remember arriving at the cross country team and there were like, there were like four girls, you know, it was like so meager and they were just so happy to see me. I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll try this. So anyway, that was, that was the only thing I did in high school was one season of cross country. And then you found running again later, though, when you were in college, right? Yes, I did. So I went to Oregon. So I always think that's such an irony because I went to like the runningest school in the country. And um, one quick funny story there was that I did start running right at the end of my um, years at Oregon. And, you know, I was starting to get into it a little bit and training and kind of doing some longer miles. And I was waking up to the fact that I had a little bit of speed. So I decided I would go like approach the coach at Oregon. And just see, I I just was like, I knew, you know, it's like ignorant. I just walked up. I was like, hey, um, what do you got to do to like be on this team? (laughs) I don't know. It's just funny. He was very sweet. I'm I'm blanking on his name right now. But he told me that, you know, like if I, you know, he's very kind. He's like, if you go off and do some really killer like 5Ks and just like winning stuff, you know, you come back to me and let me know and stuff. And anyway, at least he didn't just like you know, roll his eyes and tell me to, you know, get the hell off the track. <laughs> That's so great. Think of how far you've come now. You would never approach a coach at in Eugene, Oregon and be like, hey, <laughs> be like, I know how this works now. <laughs> I know. Well, and I think the systems have gotten so much bigger and more sophisticated too, right? Like the D1 programs are like, you know, they're professional sports teams. And so, oh yeah, you know, I would probably no more walk into that team today as a college student than I would like walk into the Seahawks training facility. And be like, <laughs> <"Yo, can laughs> I be the 
I want to hear about how your relationship with running has evolved since then. Obviously, you're still doing it, still going strong. I think you were signed up to do Boston this year, and hopefully we'll get to do that in September. But how has it evolved through the years for you? Well, I mean, in college, the reason why I started running was because I started dating my now husband who was, he's into running, but he was more into cycling, but he was just, he was like leading this life as of an athlete. And it was just like such a curious thing to me. Like what? Like you get up, you exercise every day and like you eat fairly well. And I don't know, it was just like this novel concept. So um, but really like it kind of saved my life. So I think a lot of people have that similar story where you're just like, you know, I once was lost, but now I'm found and I have running. And so it kind of became this like sort of foundation for my life. I still had no clue what I wanted to do in life, but it like became this thing that I did all the time and I did every day. And as I got faster, I just wanted to get, you know, even faster and hit more PRs and races and training and stuff like that. So actually the the big thing was that when I moved to Seattle, I joined a local club, very much like Rogue, you know, Club Northwest here in Seattle, um, where it's kind of this organic club where, you know, if you're fast, um, you can kind of train with a group and, and, you know, we started going to like club cross nationals and things like that. So for me, that was my little like mini elite, um, career in my twenties. It was super fun. When you say it saved you, what do you mean by that? Um, what do I mean by that? I just think I was so like in college, I still just had no clue. Like, so I was an English major in college. So, and I knew that, you know, I loved words. I knew that I loved creativity. I knew that I loved reading and books and writing. And, you know, that was kind of like what drove me. But in terms of like what I wanted to do or be in the world, I just had no clue. And I think that's partly linked back to growing up in Berkeley. Again, it was just like, it was so much like, be whatever you want to be, do what you want to do, you know, whatever that is, you don't even have to work. Don't get a job, go travel the world. Like, I don't know. It was just almost like the world was so big and open and there was like no direction that anyway. So, so running just, it didn't tell me what I wanted to be in life. Like I didn't like, I didn't like figure out what what my career was going to be, but it like gave me that foundation to go explore and, and find out, you know, what that might be. So talk to us about you graduate from college. You don't just go and start your own women's apparel running company. So tell us about the time after college until you had had it with shorts. (laughs) Goddamn shorts. (laughs) Fever dreams over shorts. Um, Yeah, I would, I would like, if I were to kind of break it down quickly, I would say there were like three stepping stones that led me to Wazel. Um, the first was, I mean, I actually thought I might walk in my dad's footsteps and be a lawyer. And so I, I worked for six years as a paralegal at various law firms doing really different types of work. I worked on wrongful death suits. I worked on um, environmental law. I worked on medical malpractice. and But it was long enough to tell me that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, I just felt that there wasn't, even though you could be very creative and like producing a case or writing a brief, it just didn't have enough of the creativity that I was looking for. But again, I still didn't know like what the hell I wanted to do. So um, just randomly, I applied for a job um, at a design agency, which became the second like stepping stone. 
Um, and I like literally, I didn't even know what I was applying for. I knew it was like, it was like marketing coordinator or something. And I went to interview with the founder of the company and I just walked into the office and <clears throat> they had these beautiful, like graphic art on the wall and the, you know, you know, design agencies always have like, you know, fancy chic offices and, you know, and I just walked in and I was like, oh my God, I don't know what these people do, but I want to be a part of it. It looks amazing. And so I worked there for six years and that's really where I got my like marketing chops, um, worked for all kinds of companies, you know, big ones here in Seattle, like Microsoft and Starbucks, but then also a bunch of startups. That's where I did all my naming. So, um, doing product and, and company naming. Um, and then, but then I was running that whole time, just like running like a fiend, um, doing all those, you know, 5Ks and club races. And, um, you know, my husband was still bike racing. So we would travel. This is before kids, right? Like traveling on the weekends to go to like bike race in Idaho or a running race down in Oregon. Um, and then after then kids, and then the third step was really, I started my own business um, in the early thousands where I did um, kind of brand strategy and consulting on my own. Um, and it was during that period, working from home, running, um, you know, having two young kids, but just kind of coming back into running that I went shopping at our local running store here in Seattle, Super Jock and Jill. And I was just like, you know, I was like total mom, right? Like power shopping. You know, I've got like 30 minutes to do 10 things, you know, while my kids yeah. are at home. Uh, you're just like, I just like, I must've looked so frazzled. So I go and I just, I tried on, I'm like, okay, look, I need all new shorts. Like all those shorts I've been running in for like 10 years in my twenties, they're gone. They're out. Those liners, they get nasty after a while. right? <laughs> um, so I tried on every single short and I just was kind of, well, first off, my body was not back um, to where I wanted it to be. And, you know, I wasn't like necessarily down on myself for that, but I just, it was just a reality. And so, you know, things weren't fitting necessarily like they would have before, but I just thought, God, you know, this is just so like, it seems so simple to me, but it seems also that there's absolutely nothing here that is um, not only fits well, but is made out of like a nice fabric um, where the, you know, the quality you can just like see and feel and that you, you know, that, that like I, the way I've always described it is there was like a disconnect between my love of the sport and the quality of the product. Like the quality of the product just kind of seemed like it was in the toilet. And then my love of the sport was like on this like religious level. So I was just like, that, that doesn't work for me. So anyway, that's the story. Yeah. So then you made, so that motivated you to make a pair of shorts that would actually work for female runners. Yeah. And here's where I have to say, like, my ignorance of how to actually make apparel was like total. <laughs> <laughs> I knew nothing about garment design or production. I mean, I knew about design from the sense of like what I wanted in a silhouette or the cut or the fabric feel and the color um, and even how I wanted to talk about it. But but yeah, that, that's kind of a whole other story. But I, I had to kind of hunt and peck around to find somebody locally who was kind of what you would call a pre-production specialist who could help me kind of turn that vision into an actual prototype. That's amazing. What were, what were some of your big challenges just getting going besides figuring out how to make a garment? Well, speaking of prototypes, one thing that was kind of funny, I still have these shorts cause I have to, you know, they're going to go in my, um, 
my my on my wall of fame someday but um i mean my own personal like in my house <laughs> um uh the prototype shorts i remember the um pre-production person saying um you know it's really hard finding technical fabrics you know just like literally i would go in a fabric store like can you imagine going in a fabric store and being like you know where's your um your stretch wovens and <laughs> um you know your lightweight uh wicking knits you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like, what? <laughs> exactly. So so at first it was just a struggle finding what fabrics we wanted to use. But the first thing she told me to do was to just find a fabric that had kind of like a similar like um, weight and like drape. And so the only thing I could find was this crazy like synthetic um, kind of silk. It wasn't like silk. I think it was something else. Maybe it was rayon. But it had this wild like paisley print. It was like wine and gold colored. And it literally looked like Hugh Hefner pajamas, like something <laughs> just like an old man would be wearing, you know, with like a, a matching robe or something. It sounds so, totally like your type of print right there. <laughs> I, I thought it, I, it was hideous. So I just like, but anyway, she made the prototypes out of those shorts. So I think it was kind of funny that it just like, you know, in the very beginning, a lot of times I think in the creative process, which is something that I, I feel like is my life's work is to kind of be in touch with the creative process is that you have to, you have to kind of turn your one part of your brain off. And that's the part that would say, those are the most hideous shorts I've ever seen. There's no way this is ever going to get to anything close to something that somebody would want to pay money for. And you have to kind of trust that you will end up getting to that end point. But it's, it's pretty hilarious in the meantime, because you're like, these are just, these are just plain hideous. (laughs) What about the name? Where did the name come from or how did it come to you? Uh, so um, back when I did naming, kind of the big takeaway that we would always tell clients was that it's better to have an unusual name than something that's generic and very forgettable. So um, so I knew that. Um, I, I, I knew. And so I also, the big thing we, they would talk about was that you should have a name that you can like fill with meaning, you know, maybe it doesn't have like a clear, like under, you know, meaning right away or a definition that you like wrap your head around. But like, if you can get something unique and then fill with meaning yourself, we would call it the empty vessel name. Then that was like the ideal. So um, at first, because I'm like a French lover and, you know, I was lived in France a little bit during college. Um, I wanted the word oiseau, um, which is funny because it's even weirder and harder to, just for people to spell them as L. Um, that's, in, in fact, it's like got one consonant. It's like, Alex, can I buy a consonant? Um, so Wazo is O-I-S-E-A-U, and it's the word for, for bird. And I just was really hooked into this idea of bird um, as being like that, capturing that feeling that we have when we run, right? Like you're just like completely free from um, any encumbrances, any worries. Like, you know, it's just that that time of like peace and freedom. And so, um, but not to make this too long of a story, but Wazo was basically owned from a trademark standpoint. So um, I just remember having this like, oh, like, oh my God, the word that I want is not available. So I took out my huge French dictionary that we have um, in our dining room and pulled it out. And I was kind of looking at all of the derivatives and I found Wazelle and it just kind of like struck me. It was like, oh my God, Wazo is a masculine word 
that can't be our name. Like, you know, and Wazelle is the feminine version, but it's kind of antiquated and not used very much. So, so that was kind of when I um, kind of locked in on that. Um, even so, one thing with naming is that they will always seem weird and odd and not right in the beginning because they're kind of unfamiliar to you. So I, d- I still struggled in, in the early days with like, is that it? Is that it? Should I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? I don't know. And then finally just took the plunge. Did you get any pushback from like when you were searching for investors or anything like that with the name? You know, my first investors were my family. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my father-in-law wrote me a check for $15,000 at one point. I think my dad gave me $10,000. And, you know, at that point, it was um, more that they they didn't need to be sold too much on it. They kind of knew how much it meant to me and and believed that, well, they were like, okay, well, she did naming for a job. So I guess she kind of knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I've never really, it's funny you ask that though, like in talking to other investors over the years, I've never had anybody say to my face that that's, <laughs> a, <laughs> that that's a weird name and that it's, that it's, it's too difficult. Um, so. I think it's funny. It's, it is unusual. And I remember when I first heard about it, I was like, wait, Lauren Fleshman, like, she's, she's leaving Nike and she's signing with Oisel. Like, like (laughs) I had seen you guys at a show in Portland and I was like, well, those, that's like some cool prints. And I like their tees and I was there with my mom and I was like, but I didn't know how to say it. But now fast forward all these years, it's just so natural. So it's, it's funny how everything evolves right now. I'm like, Oh, it's the perfect name. And it, it's easy to say, and I'm not nervous to say it. But when I first heard (laughs) of it, I was like, wait, what is that? It's like a super cool chick run brand and everyone's really friendly and, they're like crazy about each other. And the name is Oisel. I, yeah. I know. You're like, wow. And they chose Oisel. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Super interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. I've heard everything under the sun in terms of the pronunciation. And I'm always just like, don't worry about it. It's a weird French name. I totally get it. But I've heard like, you know, Ozel, Oisel, Weasel, um, Oiseli. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the key I always give people is like, if you can say the word mademoiselle, then you can say, oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So when you were growing the brand over these years, I know there was lots of bumps in the road. What were the challenges and did you have challenges that you felt some challenges that you got because you were female? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I would, I think for better or for worse, I didn't really think about my gender a lot. And I say for better because I, I worry if that's kind of forefront in your mind and when you're kind of trying to tackle like a big dream or a big goal, you're, you're going to, um, you're going to chalk, uh, things not working out up to that and you might stop sooner than you would otherwise. Um, but for worse, I would say that definitely as I've evolved as a, as a human, as a, you know, business person, as a woman in the world, you know, and you, you know, the more you read and you look and you kind of see what's happening, you know, globally and in our country and through various industries, it's really hard to not get to this kind of place where you just feel pissed off about, you know, the, 
the obstacles that women have to face. And so, you know, I've experienced some of those, you know, myself for sure. Um, you know, I've had, um, you know, prospective investors that I've talked to, you know, just this sense of um, maybe not taking me seriously or maybe that there needed to be a man, you know, as part of the business makeup to kind of do that. Like in the investor world, they're like, you know, do you have the old white man with white hair credibility check? <laughs> you know, Like, do you got one of those around here? Um, and so I, you know, there's just, there's so much of that that's still so present that, um, you know, you definitely, and then, you know, social media is a different, you know, beast also, like I've definitely feel like I've experienced some things, um, on social media that I don't think men in my position would experience. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, there's definitely challenges along the way. One of the things I admire about Wazell is the fact that you guys seem to have a strong identity that you live out. And a part of that is empowering women and giving them a platform to be strong and to connect to each other. Mm-hmm. How has that part of the business's identity evolved for you? I mean, is that something that you always felt was core or has emerged as you've built momentum with the brand? Yeah. You know, I think it's just, it's just part and parcel with my own evolution as, you know, a woman in the world. I just like, I don't think it, I think it would be impossible to find many women where you talk to them and they wouldn't name a time and a place in their youth where they can look back and be like, damn, I was so like insecure or like, I didn't know my own strength or I wish I had kind of had the confidence to say X, Y, or Z, or now that I know this, like that was totally messed up. And, and that's like a big jump that a lot of women make in their lifetime. And the cool thing for running is that running can often accelerate that jump. You find that like, once you learn to like, trust your body, invest in it as a, you know, powerful, you know, being entity, and you do things like train hard, work for things, do well in races, you know, set goals and meet them, that a lot of those insecurities kind of start to fade over time. And so I think as much as like, the team that we're building or the brand that we're building can be like somehow part of that story for women. I'm like all, all about it. Like, you know, and, and that's just kind of something that I just, I've seen it in myself and I continue to see it in women, you know, you know, everywhere because so many women still go through that journey of like, not necessarily you know, trusting themselves early on, because quite frankly, that's kind of the messages that we get, you know, from business and from culture is that, you know, that we shouldn't trust other women, um, that we shouldn't necessarily trust ourselves, that we aren't necessarily set, you know, intrinsically set up to be in positions of power, um, that we aren't necessarily, you know, leaders. So those are all of the things that I hope that running and maybe Wazelle in some part can help debunk. In contrast, our sport isn't that way, or at least probably promotes a lot of those those me- those bad or mixed messages, because it's it's a male dominated world with a lot of male dominated companies. At what point did you realize, as someone who maybe didn't 
play by the rules or know the rules even, you know, as a new business owner in this world, at what point did you realize that there were going to be obstacles in the sport from a governance standpoint and from a, you know, just being a woman in a male dominated industry standpoint? Well, one thing when you say the sport is male dominated, I was, I was talking about this when we were in um, Atlanta on our panel, Kara, it was just that, you know, it's pretty clear when you go to any race or any like big event or that actually women dominate the sport in terms of participation and um, customer spending and um, fans. And I mean, Kara, don't you just like see that? Like, like women are just like in many ways, kind of the bedrock of running. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just like we, and so I think that that was kind of like this aha moment I had was like, we, we drive so much of the sport from participation. What I think is probably going to change and it's going to be incremental and it's going to be painful is kind of those um, systems of power. And so, but that can live in a lot of different places, right? It can live in coaching and at the college level, it can live in, um, you know, agents for professional athletes. It can live in the governing body um, and the people that are running the sport on a national level. It can be at the USOPC. Um, it can be, um, in, you know, in, in sponsors, et cetera. So I have hope that I think as women continue to, to rise and to, to be so foundational for the sport that, um, that they will, um, um, start to change what the, what those governing bodies look like and what those main sponsors look like. But for, but to answer your question, I think the first kind of, um, inkling we got that this was, um, definitely, uh, a very closed world in which the, um, established players were looking to pretty much just keep things status quo was when we started to sponsor pro athletes. And our first kind of major pro athlete was Kate Grace in 2012. And she went to the to the track trials there in Eugene. And we just started hearing whispers there about how, um, you know, Nike representatives and other people that were there were just kind of like, you know, who who is this brand? And like, what, like, like, who are like, it just kind of like, you know, this kind of new, new player. And, and, um, but, but, you know, after that, it was, it was learning that the rules of the road, so to speak, were very much um, set up to, um, you know, prohibit prohibit and prevent um, new sponsors from kind of getting into the elite side of the sport. Sally, you're not afraid to ruffle feathers or to say how you feel. One of my favorite stories about you <laughs> is when you altered the logos <laughs> on that Instagram post. Can you please tell us that story and yeah. tell us what the consequences were? The logo gate? Yes, um, logo gate. yeah so that was when um i think it was the world um relay championships were happening in the bahamas and um so kate was there along with um katie mackie and uh, brenda martinez and there was a fourth gal um blanking on her name right now but um but you know i mean and it was classic like um you know USATF, IAAF, like non-event, like there was no, there was no, like, it was really difficult to watch and um, pretty remote, et cetera. But when the American team um, won, won their race, um, they had a, there was a photo of them holding their bouquets 
And of course they were in the, the Nike kits and everything. And it just struck me at the time that it was just bullshit. You know, it's just like, why are these women wearing kits that, um, that they're told to wear on this day when every single day leading up to that race, they had been sponsored and supported and given, you know, um, you know, money to, to make a living by other brands. And now at this moment, which was basically the highest moment, um, is all of that a race. So I just, I, I do, I did what I did. I took to my, my, um, <laughs> I took to open Adobe illustrator and I placed a photo and I just worked on some logos and just kind of fixed that photo. You know how they say that we, uh, I fixed it for you now in the uh, internet. Yes. <laughs> so just for people who didn't see it, you put the logo of their actual sponsors actual over sponsor. the Nike logo. Yeah. So Heather, they were all, yeah. 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 So they're true. They're true sponsors. sponsors. You just, and you let the, the rest of the picture is the same, but you put their, um, you Photoshopped in their appropriate logos. And I mean, that, I think I fell in love with you even more on that day, but tell us what happened after. Yeah. So I remember it was Heather Camp was the fourth person. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Heather Camp uh, ran for ASICs. ASICs. Brenda Martinez ran for New Balance. Katie Mackey ran for Brooks and Kate ran for us. And so um, what was funny, though, is that I actually so I put the Wazelle logo on Kate and I put New Balance on on Brenda and I put um, Brooks on Katie. And I actually thought that Heather ran for um, Nike. So I left her uniform as it was. And then I posted the photo on our Instagram feed on the Wazelle Instagram feed. And, um, I would say about an hour and a half later, I got a cease and desist letter from an attorney with the USATF, um, basically, um, you know, telling us, you know, to take the photo down that we were, um, that we, the, you know, the accusation is that, um, you are confusing people and making it appear as if, um, the brands shown on the doctored photo were sponsors of the, um, you know, world's world championship, you know, relay team, which I kind of felt like, well, that's true. We are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyway, um, you know, I had a little, I, you know, whatever, I had a little powwow with my team and I'm like, look, we could leave it. We could, we could take it down. What do you want to do? And we kind of came to the consensus that we'd, we'd take it down. But by that time, some, you know, screenshots had already been taken and it kind of became a story. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it was just making the point of, look, these athletes, you know, oh, oh, the funny part of the Heather Camp thing, though, is that she actually was sponsored by ASICs. So really, the only blowback we got from any athletes whatsoever was that her, I can't remember if it was her husband or her boyfriend, emailed me at the time to correct me. She said, the Heather ran for ASICs, and, and would I be able to make that change? Oh, that's amazing. So how did you feel after that? Like, were you frustrated? Were you shocked at that response, getting a cease and desist? Like, what were you thinking? Um, I was a little bit surprised, I guess. But, you know, it just became one data point among many data points that I came to learn about, you know, how um, Nike's sports marketing treat, um department treats athletes and, um, other brands and kind of their, you know, they fashion themselves as some, as a, you know, kind of like wannabe mafia folks. So, um, it, it just, you know, was like, okay, it was just, you know, that's, was kind of, 
the approach that they were going to take. And, but the, you know, I wasn't going to back down on the, on the principles of basically what was underlying that move. Right. And that was back in 2014. It's been six years. Yeah. You've ruffled, you've ruffled more feathers. You've been to USATF meetings. I know you're very involved. Are we making progress? No. On this, on this battle? (laughs) No. No. I mean, Kara and I have talked about this ad nauseum, like, you know, to a level where we probably speak in a different language, but, um, it's just the, the problem is the, the way the, the, the structural system is set up and because of, um, the power structure and because of the exclusive arrangement between Nike and USATF, there's just an inherent, um, conflict of interest that, um, unfortunately, um, because USATF is weak and because Nike is is powerful, um, quite frankly, USATF is not living up to their mission, which is to keep athletes safe. Uh, and it's a huge problem. It is. And one of the things I get frustrated by when I have these conversations with people is that it's hard to convey the fact that not only is it a problem for athletes, terms of their rights being taken away and and that's obviously massive but it's also a problem in terms of actually building the sport and building the popularity of the sport because when you have one person controlling it and really keeping tabs on who can have a voice or say without opening it up to others to get involved then it, it becomes exactly what they want it to be and not anything more than that and so to me it's also just it limits the power and magnitude of what running can be at the professional level and how that can then overflow to other levels. Yeah, totally. I, that's the, that's the big thing, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, like where would track and field be without Nike? And without a doubt, it, it's factual that they have put a ton of money into the sport via the USATF, but they've put a ton of money into creating a sport in which only they are relevant. And so what that does is it actually causes the sport on a sort of popular level to decline. Track and field, elite track and field has been on a steady decline since the 90s in terms of its broader popularity. And one of the reasons is because Nike and USATF have basically cut off the oxygen supply of other brands getting involved, being able to have visibility, because when brands don't, can't get any visibility at the national and international level, guess what? They're not going to sponsor athletes. And that's just, that's the kind of like dead air we're operating in right now, where, you know, it's just, there's so little to be gained if you're not Nike, that it's hard to make a case for investing those dollars and in sponsoring those athletes. And quite frankly, it's just incredibly sad because as we see at every like major thing, like even the marathon trials, there are so many amazing athletes and so many great stories out there, right? Like just an incredible hotbed of running both on the men's and the women's side. And wouldn't it be great if those stories were national level, um, you know, big, um, and they could be, and, and right now with the current system, it's not possible. Sally, one of the big stories of 2019 was pregnancy and athletics and reform on contracts and 
shifting this dynamic from uh, companies being so performance oriented and focusing more on athletes as whole people. But one of your biggest stars that you signed, you signed pregnant. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we um, just when we were starting to get into sponsoring pro athletes, you know, we had been, you know, fans of Lauren's and following in her and, you know, kind of th- figuring out if we could work together. And it was a, you know, it was a long conversation, you know, as they usually are. And um, I just, I don't know, it was like such a, it was just such a right fit, you know, to, to get to work with her. And so when she told us she was pregnant, I just remember like, I don't know, like when a friend tells you that they're pregnant, what's your reaction? You're excited. You're excited for them. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, like there just wasn't any other like possible reaction. And I, and I think we also knew that as a brand, we wanted to tell women's whole stories, right? That it wasn't just going to be about the rankings and the results. And I think that was what was so interesting. And, you know, talking with you, Kara, when we, met was just, I was just blown away that like, that your contract was such as it was with rankings and results really being kind of, and, and number of races per year being the only things that mattered truly. And you had kind of like transcended that in this huge way, but like so many brands that's still not like what they're looking for or what they're like interested in. And, and that, I, I just think we, we always kind of felt like the value was in the whole athlete story. Um, so pregnancy is definitely, um, you know, a special, a special part of um, the athlete journey and how an elite athlete navigates that is super interesting to women who are just recreational runners. So um, we were all about it. Yeah. I mean, I can think of so many examples with Wazel, Steph, Bruce, and other athletes, but were you surprised to see it become such a big story? Were you happy to see that people were finally paying attention? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I was surprised because it just, I think that again, this is sort of where I, I didn't really hadn't spent a lot of time in like sports marketing for other brands or kind of in the elite side of the sport. Um, so it seemed just kind of appropriate that it would be a big deal and a big story. Um, and, you know, I think with social media, that played a big part of it, right? Because prior to social media, it was really up to, um, you know, it was, you know, the, the, the marketing and the branding had to be kind of from a different, more methodical perspective, but with social media and the ability to like just instantly share stories and enter into conversations, it, it, it almost just seemed like we had this cool, like, women's club like we had this big women's club and we were this new women's brand and you know what it didn't really matter what the rest of the world was doing because we were doing our own thing Mm -hmm. well you guys I think the one thing that I love the most I mean there's so many things about Wazel that I love but I think it's the genuine sisterhood and you know, right now with coronavirus and everyone separated, like I see all these people who are in the volley and they're nurses and they're battling on the front lines and mm-hmm. the community is incredible. And it really, for me as a, as a person who was so, um, my value was always based off of how I was performing and mm-hmm. my value would go up or down depending on how I was performing. And to move into this new arena where my value was placed on who I was as a human for me was 
I mean, like culture shock, but amazing. And it's become mm-hmm. something that's so important to me. I mean, do you, can you feel what you've built? Like, do you see it? Do, can you feel it? Mm-hmm. I think my favorite thing when I feel it, when it hits my heart the most is like, it's kind of those, it's those in-person moments where I'm seeing teammates who maybe I met through the team. I mean, so many women I've met now that live all over the country that now I consider like close friends that I never would have met if it hadn't been just taking that chance on meeting somebody new. But, but I think even more than that is seeing two teammates who met through the team. And it's, it's so funny because they'll be like, yeah, you know, we met each other, you know, at Boston marathon in 2018. And then the next spring I was traveling in Chicago. And so I called her up and I was like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Could like, is there any chance I can like sleep on your couch or at your house? And they were like, yeah. And then now, and then she's been, you know, staying at my house every time she comes through Chicago and like, and they're like best friends. And, Mm -hmm. and like, to me, that's the magic is when, you know, we, we all know we love the sport. Right. And, and then to like be able to connect on another level and make those friendships, like, you know, I think that's probably the, the, you know, the greatest magic of the, of the volet. And, um, and, and I think it hits my heart a lot because it's almost like, yeah, was I'll catalyzed that. Like maybe we created like a, a way for them to connect, but that friendship may go on for the rest of their lives. And it's almost like we don't even have to have that much to do with it, but it's, it's, it's almost like running matchmaker or like, you know, a way for, for women to, um, to make friends and also professional networking. Like that's one of the things we're learning about the volet is that you mentioned healthcare, but there's so many um, teammates who kind of, you know, they, they fall into, you know, similar um, profession groups and they can like, talk to each other about different job opportunities or, oh, I see you live in Austin. You know, what's it like there? You know, I'd love to like, you know, move there, that kind of thing. So it just has kind of blossomed into this very um, rich, very, um, you know, diverse, far flung around the country community. It's cool. It's amazing. It is cool. It's a beautiful thing to see. I want to shift the conversation to clean sport for a second and just first ask you, Sally, (laughs) (laughs) as a fan, when did you start to realize that the playing field wasn't level? Oh, gosh, Kara, when was the whole Balco thing? Was that? Yeah. When was that? Was that like in 09 or 10, somewhere around there or earlier even? Yeah. I mean, it's weird, right? Like, I think as, you know, like most people, I've been a huge, like pre-Wazelle, pre-getting more involved in the elite side of running, just kind of followed, you know, track and field mostly during the Olympics and stuff. And I don't know, I just remember all the German, (laughs) you know, the Germans, the steroids and our own steroid program, like in the 90s and stuff, like, I just kind of remember learning that it had a sense that there was things going on um, that, you know, just that the, that doping was a, a definitely a factor and that it sort of seemed like as soon as they caught up to the cheaters, the cheaters would just move one step further ahead. And it sort of seems like that's how it's been. 
Yeah, I think Belko might have even been early 2000s because that named a lot of track athletes. Yeah, well, that was the Marion Jones Right. Yeah, thing. it started, I think, in 02. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was you know, definitely a big one. Um, but I think also because my husband is a bike racer, you know, cycling has been, you know, as dirty, if not more, you know, over the years, um, you know, the Lance Armstrong thing, of course, but I mean, EPO has been like, you know, a disease in that sport. Right. It's interesting as I think about you, you talking about the pregnancy stuff where it's sort of like, well, of course we would support someone through that. And as I think about you thinking about this topic, I think, well, of course, Sally and Wazell would, would stand on the side of clean sport. And obviously you guys are one of the original signers of the clean sport pledge. What do you think it means as a business to stand up and support clean sport? Oh, I think it's, I think it's crucial. I think it's like an imperative. I, I actually know some teammates too, who have been like the brands that aren't signed on there. They're like harassing them, or I, I shouldn't say harass them, but they are like seriously holding them to task and like, I'm not going to buy your product unless you sign that pledge. Um, and I think that that's an, a really, an important, um, like, you know, just like a standard to have it just, it shouldn't, it should be a no brainer. So I, I, you know, I, I, I hope that we get to a place where, where, you know, we have a hundred percent, um, you know, buy in on that and that, you know, and frank, quite frankly, it goes back to what we were talking about the systems of the sport as well. Like the powers that be the, the governing body, um, Nike's role in the sport. I mean, unfortunately there again, um, this is an area where they have not been a leader in doing the right thing. And so, you know, just hoping that over time that begins to change. Yeah. Do you feel like there's responsibility of sponsors to care about clean sport? Absolutely. Um, because, you know, if you have it as a, a value and you have it as something that you, um, talk about as being really important, then, you know, you're, you're signaling to not only the industry, but any athletes who might be working with you, um, that, that, that is absolutely a, um, if there were to be anything shady going on, that would be a complete non-starter. Right. What, I mean, if Nike and Steve Magnus, I think very eloquently when he came on the show, put, put in words how Nike could take a stand for clean sport and really make changes right away right in absence of that happening though you know it takes brands like wazelle and many others who have signed the pledge to stand up in ways that they can but what do you view as your role as wazelle or as another company that wants to do their part but doesn't have the power that nike has what can you do well, I think that um, what all of us can do is try to push for more independent governance at the international level. Like, I'm sure you guys have like followed all those stories, but I was kind of blown away by the fact that um, WADA, you know, which is the international um, kind of doping, doping um, watchdog, whatever you might call them, that actually they don't really have many teeth. Um, they have at, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of their 
like board members and leading members are also board members and leading members of the IOC. Mm-hmm. And so basically what that sets up is a, a pretty clear conflict of interest that WADA, if they are have representatives who are also on the IOC, that they are just not going to, you know, make the hard calls around busting people for doping and for doping programs because in fact doing so would jeopardize the value and kind of reputation of the Olympics. So as long as you have those conflicts of interest set up, it's just, I just don't think we're going to get anywhere. I really think like, I mean, come on, we're a small fish. Like we can talk about clean sport. We can sign the pledge. We can have those values. We can make sure that we only work with athletes who, you know, have professed to being clean. But until we have leadership at the top that sets that as a clear priority and they actually have teeth to hold people to task, um, there's just going to continue to be this um, systemic doping crisis. It's true. Yeah. One of the biggest myths, myths out there, I think, in the fan world is that well, we can't catch up to the cheaters. They're always going to be a step ahead. The testing just can't keep up, which at some level can be true. And there's certainly times when that's true. But I always try to re-educate people and say, look, until the powers that be really want to catch the cheaters, it's yeah. not going to it's not yeah. going to change. And that myth around, well, we just can't you know, we just can't catch them because the testing's always behind. So maybe we should just let it all be legal is actually Oh, that's terrible. To me, partially pervasive because the the powers that be just don't actually want to catch those that right. are doing things the wrong way. Well, I, I, I do hope that with advancements in technology and the idea of the blood passport, um, that there could get to be a place where, you know, it could be, it's almost like these DNA tests, right? Like, a test that's so powerful that it could identify changes in your blood levels, you know, not only currently, but historically um, could be really powerful. I, I think that that's, that's probably not that far off, but, but you're right. Um, you know, the, the sponsors, the governing bodies, like everybody needs to buy into this idea and, you know, get behind it and push for it. I mean, the whole notion that you should make it all legal is just so dangerous. I mean, do we really want to be turning athletes' bodies into some sort of like crazy chemistry lab where you're like endangering their lives? And like, and that's just, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just think that's gross. And um, yeah, it's just like, you know, talk about treating people like disposable, you know, you know, pieces on a, on a chessboard. It's just, yeah, it's just not, that's not the answer. Yeah. Well, Sally, we don't want to take up your whole day, but obviously mm-hmm. coronavirus has hit. Things are a little crazy right now. How are you guys coping and what do you recommend for people during this time? And, you know, is running something you're doing right now? Um, it is a crazy time, right? It's just like, um, kind of, living in the upside down. I, I, you know, we're, we're doing, we're doing okay at Wazelle. We're, you know, I think we got three things kind of going right now. One is that I just want to 
continue to use our platform to like inspire and motivate people. I am still running and I hope that others are as well, because I think we, as we all know, it's such a powerful way to stay sane and, you know, just, you know, self-care and self-health and everything is, is so important so that you can help others. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two is, um, Gosh, even recently, um, speaking of the team, um, I, I got on the app and basically said to the team, I'm like, look, clothes, there's a lot that clothing can't solve right now. And, you know, we have such huge challenges, but basically just offered my employee discount to any of my teammates who are working on the front lines of this crisis. Um, and just to say, you know, as some as a way to, to thank them for what they're doing. Um, and, uh, and then third, you know, I think as we move forward and we learn that people are, are you know, having severe economic hardships that we want to make sure that, you know, if somebody's on the team now and they feel that they can't afford it because of economic hardship, that we make sure that we give them an extension to their membership and, you know, just that, you know, this team is more valuable than ever. And and so that's kind of what we're doing on the on the Wazelle front. And then and then personally, yeah, I don't know. It's like we're under the stay at home order. Um, I'm going to go out for a run today. Lots of Zoom calls. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, one one foot in front of the other. Um, but, you know, I think if anything, we can all be grateful that we're endurance athletes, because I think running teaches you a lot about um, what to do when you have setbacks. And um, so. I, I just encourage, um, try to encourage my team and everyone to, um, you know, just keep going and try to keep, keep driving oxygen to your brain through that daily run. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's so helpful for me right now. What, if those of us that want, we love Wazelle, we want to support it. We want to support women that are on the team. What can we do right now? You know, I, I think that there's, you know, we're, we're hoping and planning to survive through this. Um, and, but there are so many, you know, small businesses out there right now, right. That are hurting. So, um, you know, I, you know, whether it's Wazelle or other, um, women led or local businesses to support, um, you know, Amazon's super convenient, but there's a lot of people that you can, um, support, with your dollars if you need to purchase something. So I think that's, you know, that's a big one. And, um, you know, like anything else, like we just got to, you know, look out for each other, try to have a little bit more patience. I've basically been staying off social media a little bit more, but almost because I just, it's such an outrage machine that I just, I, I, I don't need more of that in my life right now. Um, so I've really just been focusing on, um, being on the team app and, and talking to people, um, you know, virtually through, through zoom or, or phone as much as I can. Awesome. I have a final selfish question. Do it. Which, which is that on our last episode with Catherine Switzer, she talked about the importance of having men in her life as allies, as she has, has stood up and advocated for women in sport. I know you've been quoted as saying, you know, women should stop asking for a seat at the table and just build their own table, which I um I hear completely and you know will help build a leg or hammer a nail if I can. Yeah. And yeah. the one one question I have for you is as men who wanna be 
allies to women in mm-hmm. this fight to get more rights and more power and more mm-hmm. opportunity, what can we do? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, when the um, 2016 election happened, I think it it was a definitely kind of a shockwave um, that went through the country, and it was um, definitely a shockwave for a lot of women. But I I remember it reading at that time that um, it was actually something having more to do with race and it was about um, women of color and white women. And I remember reading this piece and it said basically that um, women of color had um, said that they were very, they were kind of, they appreciated their nice um, white women friends, but they felt that sometimes there were like, there was kind of a benign kindness that while they might be kind in person, they weren't really willing to ever kind of like step out on a ledge like publicly or vocally or like say anything to like, you know, actually potentially change the way people see the world or um, racial equality or anything like that. And I've thought about that sometimes with regards to men and men and women. I think, I think as women, we know we have a lot of male friends. We have a lot of male allies. I, I feel so fortunate to have some amazing men in my life um, who I, you know, count on every day and who are super supportive. But I think that next step is to really, you know, it's great to be nice and, you know, and kind to your women friends, but the more that um, our male allies can be outspoken, whether that's social media or in conversations with other men um, to sort of shift the thinking it's hard to feel like, you know, it's, it's authentic. You know, we, we, we want it to be publicly expressed. And I think the more men who are great men can publicly express that allegiance and that alliance, the more it breaks down that the more women will see that and the more people will embrace this idea of, of equality. There you go, Chris. You're here. I'm here for it. (laughs) I'm here for it. But I, I will hammer a nail. I will build a leg. I'll do what I can because I, I mean, I agree that, I mean, there's a lot of fucked up things in this world and a lot of it is because men have been in charge for too long in too many places. And so I do feel like a lot of the world's problems could be solved with many more women in leadership. And so how's that for standing up a little bit on this podcast? I'm happy to help where I can for we sure. We need each other. Thank you. We all need each other. That's the bottom line. Yep, totally. Well, Sally, I love you so much. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm sorry we took up so much of your time, but thank you for talking to us. No, no. No, thank you so much for having me on. I love this podcast. I love the conversations that you guys are having. And uh, I'm just honored that you that you had me on. And um, yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for all you do for our sport and for women and for clean sport. You guys have taken a hard stance, which means so much to me. So thank you so much. Yes. Thanks to Sally for joining us. Thanks to Kara for leading the way. And thanks to all of you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about the Clean Sport Collective, you can go to cleansport.org where you can sign the pledge and, as Sally said, encourage slash harass other brands to sign the pledge as well. You can also follow along in the conversation on social media by checking us out at Cleansport Co. That's at Cleansport Co. on Twitter or Instagram. 
Beyond that, please keep listening. We'll be back to you next Sunday with another episode. We'll talk to you then.